Well, the Prime Minister came face to face with that growing humanitarian crisis in Eastern Europe today on a visit to Poland. It's now estimated again that more than 2.3 million Ukrainians have fled the fighting in their country, more than half of them across the border into Poland. He thanked uh, the Polish president for the work that he's done, for the work that his country has done to address the crisis. He also promised more money to address the humanitarian crisis in Ukraine, a matching, more higher matching, $30 million now uh, for donations to the, uh, to the Red Cross. Our government will match donations to the Canadian Red Cross Ukraine Humanitarian Crisis Appeal up to $30 million because Canadians have been so incredibly generous uh, in being concerned about the people of Ukraine. So we're raising that from our $10 million original commitment. So how bad is the need? Well, today, to give you an idea, the head of the UN Migration Agency said the humanitarian crisis is so extreme that the, quote, worst case scenario in the UN's contingency contingency planning, or rather, had already been surpassed. Can you imagine that? Already been surpassed. It's been two weeks. Well, with more on that, I'm joined by the UN High Commission for Refugees representative in Canada, Rima Jamus. Rima, thank you for being here. Thank you, Ben. I guess... You know, you've seen humanitarian crisis and you've dealt with humanitarian crises in the past, but the scale, scope, and the speed of this one seems staggering. Indeed, staggering, dramatic, um, and and certainly uh, proportions that that really do test the ability of, of neighboring countries to respond. Had we spoken, Ben, just a mere week and a half ago, we would have been talking about thousands of people. But now, unfortunately, we have surpassed two million, well over two million uh, people from Ukraine who have fled essentially the violence um, and search of safety across borders. The neighboring countries have, have commendably kept their borders open and are doing their best to deal with this kind of flow. But we know that capacities uh, are quickly stretched to the limit. And we also know that given the composition of, of the families that are leaving, mainly women and children and, and the elderly, you do need specialized um, support services in place to receive them, to be able to deal with their trauma and address the immediate needs. It's, it's nothing short of staggering. We've seen... It's, I think it's 2.3 million today, up 160,000 from yesterday. What sort of, just logistically, what becomes the real difficulty in trying to, to attend to so many people moving across border a border so quickly or different borders so quickly? Well, it's, it's being sure that we have the capacity and the resources to be able to, first of all, identify and register people and take note of who they are. This is especially important when you, when you note that so many children are passing through these borders. And what we've seen, which is deeply worrying, is an increasing number of children who are unaccompanied or separated from families. So that, per, that point of contact when you have to ensure that you know who's crossing and you are able to register that information becomes incredibly important under those kinds of circumstances. But then you need to be able to do a really quick assessment on the ground and determine what are the immediate needs of this particular family or the individuals who are crossing, making sure that you're you're attentive to those and being able to respond rapidly. Um, what we're seeing most of all required, of course, is, is shelter. People need a place to, to lay their heads and protect their families while they wait this out. They're needing warm clothes, blankets, food, and of course, 
the most important thing to be able to provide uh, in addition to all of that is immediate access to cash assistance, emergency cash assistance, which allows the family to make the decision about what they need, what their circumstances require, um, and to be able to help them at least sustain themselves through the immediate emergency period. It strikes me that with a very vulnerable population, you talk about children arriving by themselves, um, women and children, the elderly, um, that you might only have us one opportunity to register them as they come across the border, and then they're, they're on their own to some extent. Is, is that the case? Well, with, with children in particular, what we've done is work closely with national authorities who are the primary um, lead in this space, the, the registration and reception. We're there to support them, but we're there as well to advise on, on the best way to handle these kinds of intense flows, because this is not our first, unfortunately, not our first emergency of this sort. But we've highlighted the need to ensure that there are special services and supports on the ground so that children have a safe place to stay. Um, ideally, that they wouldn't be moved uh, further and become uh, more distant from their home country so that at the moment when reunification um, or bringing back a child into the country is possible, we still know where they are and they're easily reached. So there's a number of different measures that can be put in place to ensure that kids are safe in the meantime and at the earliest possible opportunity, they're either traced back to the families or reunited with other loved ones. Would you be able to tell me a bit about the work you're doing inside Ukraine right now and what, what that looks like? I'm, I'm really glad you asked that question because so much of the focus has been on these massive flows of people across borders. But we know that within the borders of Ukraine, um, civilians are bearing the brunt of this conflict and they've been subjected to immense harm and trauma and devastation. And our colleagues are there on the ground alongside them because we've had a presence in Ukraine for some years now. This isn't unfortunately the first humanitarian or displacement crisis we've dealt with in Ukraine. So as the hostilities continue, civilians are being forced to take cover in, in underground shelters and, and also waited out, trapped inside their homes or, or damaged buildings. And our colleagues on the ground now are trying to reach those people as soon as there's a lull in the fighting, a pause which allows um, our teams to mobilize in order to assess what the immediate needs are, because it will be different depending on the location and what people have, have endured in that particular spot. But they, they get out there, they try and assess immediately what the requirements are and then access the relief stockpiles that we pre-positioned in country because unfortunately, Ben, we saw that we might end up in this place as much as we wanted a diplomatic solution to this and we wanted to avert a crisis of this kind, we had to plan for the worst case scenario. So we're there with the, with the stocks and the supplies and what we're seeing the needs really come down to at this point are food and water, um, shelter. Hospitals are also signaling now that they're short like surgical kits, trauma kits. Um, they need backup generators because electricity has been interrupted. They need fuel. So it's this, this, the kind of items you would imagine in a, in a major crisis scenario. You spoke of a worst case scenario. Is, is that what we're seeing? Certainly at the worst possible place we could be. Unfortunately, um, the propensity for the damage and the destruction and the scale to, to, to considerably worsen is always possible when you're dealing with a situation of active hostilities of this kind. 
Um, but, you know, we, as I said, have been hoping for the best, but planning for the worst. So at the moment, our, um, our contingency planning has forecasted that we would have something in the order of 4 million refugees who've crossed the border out of Ukraine seeking safety um, in a neighboring country. And then within the borders of the Ukraine, well, to be perfectly honest with you, it's impossible to give you a 100% accurate um, picture of of the needs. We are planning for something in the order of 12 million people who are going to be internally displaced within the borders of the country and needing some form of humanitarian assistance. I'm speaking with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, Representative in Canada, Rima Jamus, Jamus rather. Um, That's a staggering number. I mean, that that is nearly... 40% 40% of the country or not it, quite, but a, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a, it's a number that's hard to fathom, but maybe while we're talking about numbers, Ben, it's a really good moment also just to emphasize that even before this crisis, which is now, you know, the center of, of all headlines and all media attention and rightly so given, given the scale of what we're seeing and the devastation that Ukrainians are living through, even before we had this emergency, Ben, we did have 82 million people in the world who were already forcibly displaced. And we can't forget about the many other unwanted and unnecessary conflicts in the world that have left misery and devastation in their wake. So, you know, we have to continue to look for solutions and solidarity and and support for all of these other situations who are not which which don't find themselves now in the in the middle of, of all this media attention and 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 recall that human suffering is human suffering wherever it might might be and and while we're really moved by the compassion and the solidarity we're seeing now for Ukrainians we need to extend that to other places in the world as well I am speaking with the UNHCR's representative in Canada Rima Jamus right after this I did want to ask a bit about how this compares to some of the other uh conflict areas, crisis areas that we've seen even in the last 10 years and what the complexities are, particularly of this one, and also what Canada is doing to help and how much more we can do to help. We'll be back. I'm speaking with the UNHCR's representative in Canada, Rima Jamus, that's United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. We've been speaking about the size, scale, and speed with which the humanitarian crisis continues to evolve in Ukraine. More than 2.3 million people have left that country in just two weeks, 160,000 in the last 24 hours alone, many of them heading to Poland. And it is a struggle, of course, to make sure the resources are there, to make sure that they're okay as they as they make these moves. And within the country, uh, Rima Jamus was telling me 12 million people, it's estimated, may be displaced internally as well, and their needs will have to be met. I want to ask you a bit about the lack of humanitarian corridors, because it's something that's been talked about a lot. How much is that getting in the way of you being able to help those inside Ukraine find their way to some sort of sanctuary? Well, Ben, what we've been calling for from day one, along with uh, the rest of the international community, is is a cessation of all military activity and, and hostilities and a swift diplomatic solution. We won't see anybody returning to their homes unless we find uh, a durable diplomatic solution to this problem. But barring that, and in the meantime, what you do need are are pauses in the fighting, opportunities for both civilians to find safety outside of 
the immediate area of harm or or their their particular locale. So they, you know, seeking out that safety and that protection either in another part of the country or an opportunity to continue across the border. And and similarly, um, the humanitarians need that pause in the fighting in order to be able to provide um, that sustained unimpeded uh, and safe access to to our supplies and to the people who need them. We can't do what we need to do unless we have those moments of quiet where we're able to access the humanitarian relief and then distribute it to those who are in need. One of the things that I've been reading about the past little while is, of course, Ukraine had become a sanctuary for some fleeing conflict. They've now found themselves having to flee yet another conflict. I was wondering just a bit, a bit about the challenges for third country nationals that have been trying to get out of Ukraine and what lies ahead for them when they make it across borders. Well, unfortunately, Ben, we did see reports in the early uh, days of people, third country nationals, being turned back or being prevented from from crossing over and seeking refuge in a neighboring country. And of course, these were deeply alarming accounts and we immediately took those up with the authorities in the neighboring countries and stressed that all people fleeing Ukraine are fleeing the exact same risk and harm and that they need to be given equal uh, and fair access to safety across those borders. And we we saw limited accounts of that. We have been given assurances that this was not policy and that people would be allowed to proceed. But, you know, it's important to emphasize that even one case of discrimination of this sort is, is unacceptable. People need to be able to access safety and protection irrespective of their legal status, irrespective of of their nationality or their race. Um, That has to be a clear point of principle and and something that needs to be facilitated in each and every case. And correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of the sort of emergency measures that have been put into place to try to allow refugees to move on to other countries after they've arrived in those bordering countries don't seem to apply to third country nationals. What we know of the EU decision to activate the temporary protected status for those fleeing Ukraine, and what we've been told is that it also applies to third country nationals who were either refugee uh, claimants in the country, asylum seekers in the country, or those with permanent residence in Ukraine. So that's the information that we've been provided. Um, and it's our understanding that, that people would have access to that protected status if they indeed met that criteria. You've you spent a lot of time in North Africa and the Middle East. When you look at this one, at this particular crisis unfolding, how does it differ from some of those that we've seen in the past? And where are the challenges in that? It's, it's really difficult to compare situations. Each, each one of them has its own dynamic and its own um, reasons and its own trauma and, and, experience that that comes from that particular moment in in a nation's history um but but the the truism across all of them is is that you know the damage the destruction the unnecessary misery that is precipitated by conflict and violence and persecution is is something that um creates trauma and 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 victimizes people in a way that stays with them. Sometimes for for many, many years, we know that people are often waiting in neighboring countries for the first opportunity to go home. It'll be the same for Ukrainians who have left behind their fathers and brothers and sons and 
and will be wanting to return at the earliest possible opportunity. But that's a that's a common dynamic we see across all refugee crises, people waiting close to home so that they can return to home. Nobody wants to be in this situation. One question I had, we were speaking to someone who runs a charity inside Ukraine a little earlier, um, and they're, of course, struggling. How much coordination is there, especially in these difficult early days? How much coordination is there between all the aid organizations that are moving in to the surrounding areas and into Ukraine itself? Well, fortunately or unfortunately, Ben, as I said, it's it's not the first humanitarian emergency that we've had to deal with. And we have in place procedures and staff and mechanisms that we activate immediately in a crisis like this. And there is one part of the UN system that is mandated to do exactly that, to coordinate the relief effort, to stand one step above and have the bird's eye view to make sure that everybody is acting in unison, that we we have a full picture of what the needs are on the ground, that we avoid duplication and gaps. And we have, as I said, specialized um, colleagues and procedures that are activated in moments like this. So thankfully, we have a lot of experienced colleagues on the ground who are involved in leading this effort uh, and ensuring that to the extent possible, uh, needs are being met. But I, I have to say that in order for us to be able to do that for the medium term, we're going to have to see sustained support, not just for the neighboring countries, but for the for the greater humanitarian relief effort that's being now delivered by the UN and, and humanitarian partners. Because I know you did thank Canada for its $100 million. Um, but I've seen recently um, calls from, from the Director General that, that much more is needed. Well, the problem is, Ben, um, is that unfortunately situations of this sort don't usually come to a conclusion very quickly. Uh, While the diplomatic process plays out and the international community is engaged to try and find a solution, the clock keeps ticking and, and people keep moving and the needs continue to grow. So we are very grateful for the overwhelming support and and outpouring of generosity, not just from government, um, but from individual Canadians across the country and businesses. Um, I I wouldn't be exaggerating if I told you that the level of support we've seen and the level of generosity is is unprecedented. And that will be very important for, for the days ahead. Where we will run into trouble is if this continues for a longer period of time. And that's where we'll really need the continued um, support, the sustained support of individuals, of governments, and, and we'll really need them to stay the course because as time goes on, those needs are going to become more complex and, and unfortunately numbers will probably continue to grow. Rima Jamus, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ben.